Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. We are going down a road that I'm very excited about. Uh, we are doing some ancient history today. So we have with us Carla Nescu, who is a PhDH historian. She's a speaker, lecturer, explorer and traveller, and she's on the road to uncover the long lost mystery that is Artemis. So welcome, Carla. Thank you. Thank you so much. We are so excited. We're going to be doing all about Artemis and you're going to tell us why she is the most awesome thing to ever walk this earth, right? Yes. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Pre- be prepared to be wowed. <laughs> that is fine. We will be, we are ready to rock and roll. So what you've done, you've mm-hmm. sent us a couple of points and uh, yes. we're going to go through these points. Feel free to talk as much as you like. Um, okay. And we will do, we're going to start with the first one. So that's the building of the Artemisian and its role as a century. Yes. Okay. So that's, that's a perfect start actually, because, um, the temple is where it all happened, you know? Um, and so, um, where to begin? Um, this temple was built three times. So by the third time, it was the greatest, one of the greatest wonders in the ancient world. So it took three tries to get it right. Um, but this also means that it was very, very, very old. Um, so we are looking easily at like, 6th, 7th century BCE. And so it was um, very, very, very old. And it was in an interesting location in Ephesus, actually. Uh, The way that they found the location to put this temple there for Artemis was by following bees. Um, Yeah, bees. So bees are a bit of my obsession. Um, um, When we talk about her statue, Artemis has this, like, this vest on her body. And academics, especially those who are looking into Artemis Ephesia, which is really only like three of us or so in the world. But anyways, um, we love to argue about what is on this jacket. Okay, so the top two contenders for these uh, bulbous um, pieces on her jacket is that they are either bull scrotum or beehives. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um... I don't know what to say. <laughs> there is, there is, there used to be, and I don't know, it's kind of losing popularity, but there used to also be a theory that they were breasts. Okay. The problem with the breast theory though, is that um, on the actual statue, and there's only like three originals left in the world, um, but even the copies later on, there are no nipples. So they're just like round circular non-nipply things this is getting a little more rated on listen we love smart we love sex don't worry about it it's not a problem on this podcast go as graphic as you like so so originally right like early classes is when they saw it um they um 
automatically thought breasts. Well, I mean, they were men, so clearly they automatically thought breasts. Oh, gosh, um, yes. and, <laughs> and then, so they call it this polymastrous or polymastrous uh, jacket. So it's, you know, uh, many boobs on this jacket. But as people started looking at it more and studying more and et cetera, et cetera, um, you know, they started thinking, well, this doesn't make any sense because it, this is it's clearly a vest. It's clearly no nipples. Um, you know, it's got to be something else. And so then the debate continued. Um, and based on some of her rituals and some of the other animals that are on her vest or on her a statue, for example, like there's goats, there's lions, there's numerous, numerous other animals, there's lots of bees. And so uh, the two contenders nowadays are, I don't know if they're more exciting, but the bull scrotum and the bees. Um, and so and the beehives. And so my little obsession started with this, um, I like bees, but also this, this digging up of like bee legends and bee symbols and like bee recipes. I mean, they used to make this mead that you could drink and then they used to make this sort of, well, for less of a better word, this, this drug that you could uh, smoke out of, uh, you know, honey. And so it became more and more of um, diving into this mis- the mysteries of bees, you know. So I'm on the bee, I'm on the bee train. Yeah, some of my Tell colleagues are on the bulls. Oh. <laughs> I, w- I want to know more about these bees. So let me tell you, okay, so let me tell you a little bit about the bull scrotum. The reason why they think it's bull scrotum, because this is actually quite simple, is because they used to have a, a festival uh, once a year where they would cut bull scrotum from bulls as a sacrifice and then kind of put them on top of the statue. Okay. okay. So like bloody, okay. if you can imagine bloody bull sacks on her statue. Okay. So this was her, uh, this was sort of a coming of age ritual for um, young men. And, um, and it was, you know, really bloody, uh, clearly a very bloody um, ritualistic practice. And so, this is how some of these um, scholars believe that this is bull scrotum. Now, I don't know. This is the only thing that really happens that leads to bulls. I mean, the Spartans also worshipped her, and there's a little bit of a bull ritual and a bloody ritual there too. Um, but this is the event that kind of people went, okay, so she must have been covered in bull sacks. That's what the vest is about. I think that's what and, every guy aspires to. Right? Having, uh, right. Bull it's so uh, it's so literal, right? It's so like, um, yeah. And so to me, it just doesn't sound right that um, this goddess that was worshipped for a good thousand years, if not more, if we look back pre-Greek, um, is really enveloped in this vest of this bull scrotum. It just it doesn't make any sense to me. It's very masculine. Let's say it's a very masculine um, assumption. Um, I think the bees make the perfect sense because bees are really interesting. They're they're weird and also very very interesting. Okay, and the and the ancients were obsessed with them, um, and they were obsessed with several things. So let let's talk about let's talk about bees. We'll leave the temple for a minute, but let me talk about bees. Sorry, I'm, I'm taking over your bees. <laughs> Okay, so bees. So in the, when they first established the temple, they followed bees as an omen, as an omen, sorry. Um, and so the idea was that the bees guided their fleet 
Okay. And then they got there uh, in the port, which was by the waters of Melise. Um, and they saw all these bees sort of swirling around this area. And they were like, okay, this is the place where we're going to build a temple. So that's number one piece of evidence. Okay. Bees did that. Then they minted bees on the coins in Ephesus. So one side is a bee, one side is the, is the goddess Artemis. So that's number two. It looks like the bees are important, right? Um, then after that, the bees are a symbol of parthenogenesis, which I don't know. So parthenogenesis is when a female divinity can create offspring without the help of males. Okay. That's kind of useful. <laughs> so, for example, in Greek mythology, right, Gaia is the first. So, out of nothing is Gaia. And she births herself. She births Uranus, which is, becomes her son consort kind of thing. And then they birth the rest of the, you know, Greek titans and eventually Olympians and et cetera, et cetera. So, this idea that goddesses can birth their own offspring without the help of males is deeply rooted uh, in Greek mythology. Actually, Hera gives birth to Hephaestus alone. So Zeus doesn't help her out of spite because Zeus is having all these affairs and having all these children. Um, so this idea that goddesses could have, or female divinities could have offspring without the help of males um, is something that is deeply rooted in bees because the ancients thought that the bees, like the queen bees, right, were virginal. They didn't see them having been fertilized <laughs> by any of the, <laughs> of the male bees, right? Um, and so then they thought of them as these, um, these representations of virgin mothers, right? Um, so that was really interesting. Um, and, of course, uh, the Greek Artemis is a virginal, figure she's a virginal goddess and then in our in Ephesia she's also I mean her virginity is not really that emphasized in Ephesus but clearly she has no concert and she has no children um so one could argue that she's also a virginal mother in that as well right um so these are quite fascinating I think they really tripped up um the ancient philosophers you know because they couldn't really they saw them as this mysterious um insects creatures etc um, they also thought that they were prophetic. So they seemed to be able to predict the weather, these, which was really interesting, like wind, rain, frost, sun. Um, and then they also, ancient observers also watched them staying close. Uh, like, for example, when they when something bad was about to happen, bees tend to stay close to their hives uh, and they would leave. And so they became these prophetic... Um, these prophetic representations, right? So they would watch the bees and be able to see, okay, something bad's going to happen today or there's going to be a storm or blah, blah, blah. And so then they, they, they had this prophetic imagery and that was later attached to Delphi, right? To the, um, you know, the prophetess in Delphi. So bees are really fascinating in their connections to so much of ancient Greek lore, right? So much of ancient Greek lore. Um, and then we can get into um, the things that they made from from honey or fermented honey, right? So they made the mead, which is kind of like honey, water, and then they added wine. So that was a really good drink, and people had a really good time enjoying their bee beer. Bee beer? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I'd, I'd definitely try it. Why not? <laughs> so, me too, me too. I mean, it's it's all natural, right? Uh, but apparently fermented honey has lots of uh, hallucinogen properties, right? Um, and so it becomes like this intoxicant that they, they drink and that sometimes they take and they have these hallucinogen prophetic dreams. Um, so uh, at the Temple of Delphi, um, there was a lot of this use of this fermented honey and this bee. In fact, there's this really weird practice that they used to do where they used to make this mead sort of like um, it was like a thick, thick fermented honey, uh, but thick enough that you could sort of smoke it so that it, it had like um, a smoke coming out of it. Oh, wow. And the, and the prophetess Adelphi, okay, used to like, how do I say this? used to kind of crouch on top of it, kind of like sitting on the toilet, okay? So that the smoke from this fermented honey would enter her body, and in entering through her body, <laughs> I can visualize that, um, she would be able to prophesize or, or give a prophecy or whatever. Um, so this is how they initially um, started um, by prophecy, right? Um, at Delphi anyways. And so the, so it's really interesting that they would use honey or I guess whatever smoke honey or yeah, it sounds kind of weird, right? Because I've never seen smoked honey before, but apparently they would create this sort of smoke from it and she would crouch on top of it and it would enter her and then she would be able to give the prophecy. Right? That's actually really cool. Yeah, I mean, sometimes when you go down this tunnel, this bee tunnel, um, you are, some of the stuff that you read, you're just like, wow, it wouldn't even have occurred to me um, that, you know, anything like that would happen. So, and then of course, the idea, that, the fact that bees reproduce without males and they produce males or drones, right? So that's sort of spontaneous uh, reproduction, like we talked about the parthenogenesis. Um, and so they have this, it seems like they have this, um, literally a hive in which they are the, the queen bee. And so Artemis sort of becomes the queen bee, in my opinion. You know what I mean? She's sort of seen as the, the, uh, the epitome of this virginal mother that feeds the entire world of Ephesus and the entire city of Ephesus. And of course, all her worshipers, um, virginally. So without giving birth to, let's say, a particular god but really just nurturing and caring for everybody in the city so she becomes this kind of be virgin mother queen savior etc she's she's a really massive uh significant goddess and i was really surprised when i started my research that more people don't actually really talk about her you know um scholars talk about athena a lot people talk about a lot of demeter a lot of course hera every now and then as that nagging wife uh but artemis in greek history she kind of gets left behind she's like oh yeah just you know that young huntress she doesn't really like men she likes to kill people every now and then you know she's just prancing around the woods with her little you know bow and arrow um, and so she almost appears as as sort of this adolescent, you know, divinity. And so I think a lot of early classicists just kind of left her as this this young woman. Um, but in Ephesus, she is a force to be reckoned with. And for me, what I found more and more is as I traveled is that I found I find her in other places throughout the Mediterranean. 
you know so of course you find her in Italy and I found you know you find her in like Jarash I went to Jordan a couple of years ago and Jarash they had a huge temple there a massive temple there to Artemis and the statue inside the temple of Jarash of course is Artemis Ephesia um interestingly also Jordanians um are big uh, beekeepers and now we found out that in Israel, actually, as well, there were, you know, hundreds and hundreds of beekeepers. And some of the bees came from Jordan, which may have come from around the Temple of Jerash, which may have been associated with Artemis of Ephesia. <laughs> so it all comes down to the bees, basically. Right. Like, uh, to me, it seems that way. I mean, you know, the argument for the bull scrotum is that ritual, right? So you're like, okay, okay, it was a great ritual. It was probably a lot of fun. Um not for the bull, obviously, but, uh, but, you know, I mean, it, it's not, it's not as widespread um, as some of these um, other aspects, I think, of the bees. And because Artemis is also the goddess of childbirth, and she is that in both the, her Greek and her Ephesian incarnation, um, you know, honey is used commonly for female reproductive complications, right? So you could, uh, use honey to induce a girl's first period. You can in, use honey to assist in labor or soothe the womb after the labor. Um, there are lots of cures that are made using honey for ailments. Like, you know, for example, they have a cure for repositioning a displaced uterus. I mean, that, that, that's a, wow. that's a serious, wow. right? That's a serious issue. And, and they use honey to soothe and ease, you know, moving or, re, you know, repositioning it. So, it seems the more you dig into bees, the more you see how associated they are with the female sort of the female experience, both in Ephesus and also in the, in the rest of the Mediterranean. Um, and so it, I think it makes more sense, at least to me, um, that she would be um, like the queen bee, you know what I mean? The original queen bee and that the, the garment that's wrapped around her body, the tunic um, is, um, is beehives and then on the sides of her legs she also has these like three big bees kind of climbing up her body so i'm pretty convinced let's just <laughs> i'm pretty convinced that um that it's beehives you know um and we haven't even talked about resurrection right because they bees were thought to be um to resurrect right uh, so if, for example if you if you've ever been to the uh tomb of agamemnon uh, and the old sort of Mycenaeans and Minoan, Minoan tombs, they were all like beehives. Like they're in the shape of cones. And when you go inside, it looks like a beehive. Oh, wow. Right? Yeah. And the idea is that um, they thought that bees um, were had this resurrection or because they found so many bees, for example, like bee nests in dead bodies, like dead carcasses, um, there's a sort of symbolic association that out of the dead grows life, you know? Uh, of course, bees just, you know, I mean, they, they're looking for a location to have a safe nest. And actually, you know, ironically, there's lots of legends of bees nesting in dead bull carcasses. Now, imagine if the dead bulls are the ones that lost their scrotums <laughs> and then somehow the bees, you know, are coming. So there's this legend that bees grow in carcasses, but the two particular carcasses that they like are bulls and lions, right? 
Um, so for example, like in the Samson, you know, the story of Samson and Delilah and Samson, when he finds bees, there's a bee nest inside a lion carcass, right? And he eats the honey and, you know, he, he causes all these problems. So bees are actually, I think more, they're really underrated historically speaking. I don't know if they're because it's because they're so, um, associated with femaleness and female life experiences, maybe, maybe even a little bit of female empowerment, or if just nobody really thought that they were that interesting anymore uh, in the modern age, like now people are a little more concerned with them because, you know, we need them to live uh, and to pollinate. But for a long time, they were just whatever. They were, you know, not as interesting. And then when you dig backwards, you could see across the world in numerous societies that they were quite um, significant as far as religion or spirituality or any of those things, and they were really significant to Artemis of Ephesus. So hopefully all my colleagues who hear this podcast <laughs> are convinced <laughs> that um, it makes more sense that she is wearing beehives around her body uh, rather than bullsprotum or breasts. Although there are places in Italy uh, later, you know, um, depictions of Artemis Ephesia, like in gardens and things I've seen her where they, they built the statue as she is. I have a few pictures of it, but then her, like her vest has nipples and from the nipples comes water. Right. So she's become, she's like the sort of garden fountain and they've used her jacket and they've made nipples and from the nipples come water. Um, I, I don't know what to to that other than you know that's that's um the architect's imagination of what those things are but you will find like if you go around if you go rome if you go north of rome you'll find some gardens where she will be there in her ephesian outfit but they will have given her breasts and made her into some kind of a fountain in which water comes out of these these nipples that that don't exist in the original statue you know people are still obsessed with some of the breasts ideas so what's the actual difference between Greek Artemis and the Ephesian version? So much, so much. Um, the Greek Artemis, like I said, she she is basically uh, an adolescent, you know? I mean, you know, we don't have her exact age, but she's very, she often referred to as young virginal. She hangs around with a lot of young nymphs. Um, she doesn't allow anyone to look at her. She punishes Agamemnon by asking for Iphigenia when Agamemnon's heading towards the war, towards the Trojans. Uh, and then she saves Iphigenia. So she's a protectress of women in Greek, um, in the Greek pantheon and in charge of childbirth. So those are sort of her two uh, responsibilities. Where in Ephesus, because she inherits the history of the Anatolian Kybele, uh, and Kybele is actually multi-breasted, which kind of fights against my theory just a little bit. But so the Kybele, the, the Anatolian Kybele, the mother goddess um, or the goddess of the earth, the goddess, the mistress of animals. She has n- numerous uh, names. Um, she is depicted sometimes as multi-breasted. Um, and so when the Greeks arrive in Ephesus, they because Kybele was also the mistress of animals, they say, well, we have a mistress of animals too. Oh, it's Artemis. And so they, they sort of um, transition that worship. But interestingly, in Ephesus, Artemis retains 
pretty much all of Kaibali's responsibilities and powers. And Kaibali is like, it is a massive influence. So not only was she, you know, the goddess of the Amazons and uh, a powerful mother divinity, uh, a resurrector of life, uh, a mistress of forests. I mean, Kaibali was pretty much the queen bee in, you know, much of this area on the Mediterranean. Um, and so Artemis inherits all of that. Uh, and so she, that's why she becomes Artemis Ephesia, uh, because then even her, her representation changes. In the Greek Artemis, she's just wearing like a little dress, um, a short dress, and she has these, this bow and arrow. Um, but in the Artem, the Ephesian representation, she is, um, truly an embodiment of nature. You know, her body is, she has a crown that she wears, right? Um, which is sort of the city on her head. So again, that comes out of that old tradition. She's the protectress of the city, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but it's also lean, uh, attaching her to royalty. So the idea is that she's a, a monarch, a divine monarch. Um, and so she's, she's significantly more influential and more powerful in Ephesus. And then for some reason, that representation is really adored by everyone who comes into Ephesus or travels through Ephesus and of course the Ephesians themselves. I mean, the Ephesians themselves hold on to her for so long. Um, you know, they, they fight even later on at the turn of the millennia, they fight against Christianity. They kick Paul out of, you know, he goes in front of the temple of the Artemisian and he's trying to talk about Jesus and they're like, get lost. They throw him out. They beat him up. So the Ephesians were very, very attached to this divinity um, she has a month-long celebration for her birthday in May, and it's like Christmas. Yeah, so they have this festival, this procession um, in the month of May, which is known as Artemis's birthday month. Um, and so the procession is is massive. It's supported by, of course, and paid for by the um, ruler at the time, the state senator, et cetera, et cetera. It goes well into the Roman Empire. The entire month, everybody has the month off, uh, and they so the month the the sorry the month ends with the procession. But throughout the month, they have all these celebrations, parties, dances, theater, etc. It's massive. Um, people dress up. They put on masks. They dress as the goddess often. Um, they drink all of this fermented mead, etc. In her honor, and then at the end of the month, they have this massive procession. And in the procession, there's young girls and young boys dancing, walking, et cetera, the priestesses, her priestesses. And at the very end of the procession, they carry her statue. Okay. So the, so the last statue, because they have a few other statues, they have uh, nymphs, they have other, other statues that they carry around and celebrate. But at the very end of the procession, the very last statue, the most important, kind of like the Santa Claus parade. I don't know. I don't know if you've ever seen the Santa Claus parade, but like here, we have a Santa Claus parade every year in November and all these, I don't know, reindeers and elves and people walk in the parade. And then at the very end, of course, you have Santa Claus. Well, that really harkens back to all these processions that they used to have in the ancient world. Um, Santa Claus parade arguably could be, is based in a pagan tradition, right? Um, and so Artemis is the same. Her statue comes at the end. It's fully decorated. No, no ball, no, no, 
scrotum this time just flowers and (laughs) (laughs) flowers and uh and um things like that um and so she comes at the end and then they basically walk around town the city so there's a there's a map of how they do the procession and they walk around the city everybody throws flowers etc and then they return her to the temple and then sort of the year starts again Um, that actually sounds really awesome Oh my gosh. And imagine that it's all paid for. So it was the duty of the city ruler to pay for the entire month. So the food is paid, the booze is paid, the entertainment is paid. And so politicians used to like compete with each other and how much they would spend on this festival. Imagine, imagine if we had something like that nowadays where we would, you know, our politicians would pay for us to party for a month, you know? I'm sorry uh, that they would come. <laughs> I mean, Wait, when are we doing this idea? This sounds really good fun. Right. <laughs> I mean, I think we need to bring back this tradition, right? I mean, it's got it's got to happen again. That's going to be the um, new history hack. Uh, uh, what you call it? Petition. Let's bring back the festival of Artemis, so we can yes. party and get drunk for a whole month. Yes, yes, yes. I, I mean, I'm down for that. I'm just saying, you know, we we could we could start it anytime. Uh, next May sounds great. It's 2021. It's a new year. It's a good thing, right? Fresh start. Um, oh. <laughs> so it, it it was so it was very much like Christmas. And so Ephesians, like they they not just worship this goddess, they identified with her. You know, they told their children stories of Artemis, sort of the hero, right? Um, and so she, she really gave them their identity. And so you could really see that later on when Christianity comes into Ephesus and, and they fight so, so hard um, to keep her. Um, and I mean, the best they have, of course, becomes um, the Virgin Mary. Uh, and so they, they kind of take that for themselves. I don't know. I don't know if you ever heard, but like the Virgin Mary uh, is named Theotokos, which is mother of God in Ephesus. And so in my dissertation, when I first started doing this, um, I argued that it could only happen in Ephesus that Mary could be called mother of God because the Ephesians needed a female incarnation of what they had worshipped for so long that they fought to make the only female available in Christianity into almost a goddess. You know? So there was a lot of debate um, in the early church of, of over the Virgin Mary. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that the Ephesians would not give up having some kind of female representative. You know, they were like, okay, I would get you taking us over, but we need something. So let's, let's look at Mary. Um, and, and in many ways, Artemisia survives. I don't know if I would say survives, but uh, some of her aspects perhaps survive through the, you know, through Mary um, because the Ephesians just could not, they just could not find an identity that was not around goddesses. So even today, when you go to Ephesus, you have two goddesses. Well, I mean, to me, goddesses, um, you have Artemis, you can go to her temple in Ephesus, and then you have the Virgin Mary's house where she is said to have passed away, where you can go there. So even today, Ephesus is still known for that sort of female divinity, that female energy. You know, it's quite fascinating because it's you know, 2000 years later. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So what's no. the similarity between the two? Between Artemis Ephesia and the Virgin Mary? Yeah. I mean, some of the similarity, I mean, the, you know, the Virgin Mary was very, uh, there are boundaries or limits around her imagery. But some of the interesting things, actually, that they say about the Virgin Mary, besides the fact that they name her Theotokos, which is the mother of God, uh, which then puts her in this contention. Is she a divine being? Is she not a divine being? Et cetera. Um, but one of the things that's interesting about her is this idea of milk and honey, that she provides milk and honey um, for, obviously for Jesus, but also for her followers. So honey actually continues to remain uh, a big part um, of early Christian practice. And bees, again, continue to remain this mystery for early Christian. And actually, the Virgin Mary is often associated with bees, or with the queen bee, again, because this idea of this virginity and this parthenogenesis. So the idea that she birthed Jesus technically without the help of a male, a human male, let's say, or organic male matter. It all comes back down to these things, right? <laughs> yes, right? Like, it's... it's it's very, so it's very be, it, it, it harkens back to this idea of this virgin mother, right? So queen bees technically are virgin mothers because they create males without the help of males, right? Um, but, and so that, that's really fascinating, not just for scholars, but for, you know, numerous religious uh people or groups or communities and so um the virgin mary becomes this sort of iconic bee as well um and so for example in the you know the medieval period and in the later periods you can find the association between the virgin mary and bees right uh and the sacred honey and things like that so i think in a way mary kept some of that uh and this idea of mothering um, and this idea of virginity um, and the sort of part of the royal family. Um, those are kind of the characteristics. I mean, she's not really as associated with nature or things like that. Um, but actually, interestingly, at Easter in Rome, they have a procession, right? Um, a huge procession at Easter. Huge, huge, huge. Okay? And for many years, I haven't seen it in the last couple of years, uh, but for many years, the last statue, okay, the last statue in the procession is Mary. So Jesus is second last, and Mary is the last. And so other non-Catholics, for example, have argued 
that this, you know, Catholics are pagans, right? You've heard this argument. Oh my God, they worship Mary. They worship Mary, blah, blah, blah. And in part, that is because the very last statue often at the Easter procession is Mary. And traditionally, the last statue is the most important. Yeah. And so if you like, you can, you know, you can Google or look at old documentaries of the Eastern, uh, the Easter procession in Rome, and you will see all of these non-Catholics kind of lined up yelling, you know, at the procession. Uh, calling, you know, Catholics, you pagans, pagans, because Jesus is technically supposed to be uh, last. Although, I mean, technically, the whole procession is a pagan ritual, right? I mean, it's, it's old as time. But the last statue should be the most important statue, and the last statue is always Mary. Um, and I think that that's, that ties in very deeply with the old roots of goddesses birthing their own son. So Gaia births Uranus. Um, other goddesses birth, you know, Hera births Hephaestus, Mary births Jesus, uh, Buddha's mom, for example, not to jump into Buddhism, but Buddha's mom, for example, births Buddha without the help of a male. Uh, there's, this, you know, this idea that uh, female divinities can birth and this, there's a sort of magic in creating life without the help of, you know, male organic matter or whatever. Um, and so that, that's quite a mystery that I think as, as a species, we really like, you know, so we see it repetitive over and over and over and over again. We like this idea, this sort of magical birthing. Um, and so Mary has a lot of that. And, uh, and so she, she gets that authority. Um, and in Ephesus, they were really, really interested in having sort of a, a legend of Mary since they had to give up, you know, Artemis Ephesia. Um, and so they had to give up the temple. The temple was destroyed by the Goths um, during the Roman Empire. It was destroyed. Actually, it was destroyed in the summer um, just a, a little while ago during the birth of um, 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 Alexander the Great. Sorry, that was the second time that it was destroyed. And then the Goths destroyed it in 276. So they really actually today, if you go to Ephesus, the only thing that you can really see is literally one pole. Like they, they only have one pole left of the entire temple. And the temple was massive. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, but that's all that survives now. Um, and then if you go just a little bit more north, you can visit the house of Mary, where she's said to have, uh, to have died. Ephesus is a fascinating place. Fascinating. Um, I, I want you to summarize Mm-hmm. really quickly why artemis is the most awesome person ever so one of my favorite things about her is that she connects the pre-greek traditions so all of the kybele all of the early amazon so, you know amazon legends all of these early uh, natural divinities she connects that through um greek culture and greek mythos uh and so she kind of takes on a little bit of the of that greek tradition she then later also takes on some of the Roman, like the Romans really loved the temple, rebuilt her statues. So she, she takes on a little bit more of that um, queen mother, mother of nature. And lastly, and eventually she ends up sort of being observed or fused with the Virgin Mary, which is arguably the greatest female representation in Christianity. And so I would say that Artemis Ephesia is probably one of the most long lasting survivor divinity um of of all time i think the the only other person that i would uh, the only other divinity that i would argue is equal to her would be hecate 
which is probably another podcast, but, um, but yeah, I think that she survives, um, all of these changes, all of these transformations, all of these fusions, um, and continues to fascinate us today. That's it. That's, uh, that's amazing. Thank you very much. Listen, thank you so much for joining us anyway. That was an absolutely brilliant overview. Actually, very detailed, very detailed overview, um, of Artemis and why she is probably the most amazing goddess out there. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me so much. Join us tomorrow when Simon Sibag Montefiore will be with us. He's got two new books coming out and one is a compilation of the greatest speeches in history and another is a compilation of the greatest letters in history. And we had a great time talking to him about some of his favourites. So don't miss that. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus and we would really appreciate it as we would love to do so. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.